Hello, welcome to The Bunker. I'm today's host, Andrew Harrison. It's been a year of unprecedented weather events. We've seen severe flooding in Pakistan and Bangladesh, killing thousands of people. The Yangtze River in China dried up. We've seen famine in Somalia and Ethiopia, Europe's worst drought in 500 years, and, of course, the hottest temperatures ever recorded, including wildfires in the UK. In October, a series of grim reports prompted leading climate scientist John Rockstrom to say the world is coming very, very close to irreversible changes. Time is really running out very, very fast. Those reports showed that emissions would have to decrease by about half by 2030 to meet the target of 1.5 degrees of heating. Yet they are rising and oil companies are making vast profits in a world shaped by Covid and the Ukraine war. Now, world leaders and their representatives are gathering for COP27, the UN Climate Change Conference, which starts today, Sunday the 6th of November, in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. And the prognosis is grim. Even if all countries reach the targets agreed at COP26 in Glasgow last year, we will still be heading for 2.5 degrees of heating and catastrophic climate breakdown. So what can we expect from COP27? Real action or a talking shop at the end of the world? With me to explain it is Madeleine Cuff, environment reporter for The New Scientist and formerly the iPapers environment correspondent. Hello, Madeleine. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you. Just to set the scene, I mean, the picture is seems pretty grim. How serious a scenario are we facing? Well, I don't think there's any um, point sugarcoating it. The situation is very, very serious. Over the last few years, the predictions from climate scientists have got ever more stark and have confirmed that climate change is advancing faster than really anybody ever thought possible. I mean, and the 40 degree temperatures that we saw in the UK this summer are a really good illustration of that. Um, So under current projections, and this is including um, climate targets that countries have already set, we are on course, as you say, for two and a half degrees of heating by the end of the century. And what that means is that that could mean runaway climate change. So that means a collapse in Arctic ice sheets. It means the thawing of the permafrost. It means the disintegration of the Amazon rainforest as an ecosystem. And if those things happen, then the bets are really off about how quickly this thing will spiral. So there is a lot of work to do to get this problem under control. What are you expecting from COP27 then? What's been, you know, often conferences will trail uh, likely agreements beforehand. They'll be leaked, they'll be briefed. What's been hinted at so far? So it's interesting. If we cast our mind back to um, November last year when the UK was hosting COP26 in Glasgow, that was a really big summit, not only because it was the first time COPs returned after the COVID pandemic, but it was the first time the Paris Agreement was really, which is the big climate treaty that was agreed in 2015, this was the first summit that the Paris Agreement was up and running. So it was a good test of how fast we're moving as a world to cut emissions. Now, COP27, obviously the summit straight after COP26, um, is slightly less of a fanfare moment for climate targets. So we had a big round of new pledges made last year. And this year, um, the hosts, which are Egypt, want to focus a bit more on making those pledges be rolled out on the ground. So they want to see real action on the ground rather than lots of fresh headline grabbing targets. And what that means in in kind of UN terms is that they want to see some money delivered. They want rich countries to live up to their promises of providing some financing for poor countries so that these poorer countries can get moving and start to reduce emissions on the ground. So that's kind of the setup for what what COP27 is set to show. Okay. Are there other key elements that listeners should be be watching out for? 
So there are a number of key elements that listeners should be looking out for. Firstly, um, the start of next week will be the high level segment. So that's when all the world leaders jet in and and, and kind of pronounce their um, their commitment to climate action. Um, and then behind the scenes, negotiators will spend the next two weeks talking about some quite niche issues, but nonetheless important for keeping the Paris Agreement on the road. So there are issues around financing, there are issues around how countries report their emissions reductions, um, and there are issues around how to put forward new pledges under the Paris Agreement. So there's going to be quite a lot of things happening in the background, but this isn't a summit where you will see a big headline treaty agreed at the end. So this is more about delivery of what was agreed last time than uh, creation of new commitments. Absolutely. And and that in itself is, is relatively controversial, given that we are not on track under current promises to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. There's a, a pretty sizable wing of, of global leaders who want to see you know, these summits put forward new pledges each time until we get on track. But there is a view from um, more vulnerable countries that actually what needs to happen is action on the ground. So there's a kind of push-pull tension there about what these summits are for. Are they for delivering promises that have been made and for sticking to the schedule? Or are they for continually pushing for more action to just force the world onto a trajectory that's in line with with Paris, which is that 1.52 degree scenario? About 150 countries submitted fresh climate promises at COP26. There's been another 24 since. I mean, the question in a lot of people's minds is, do these commitments actually mean anything? Is there any way to hold sovereign countries to their commitments? So in short, no. Um, I mean, in democratic countries, you can hold your government to account by voting them out of office. But no, under the Paris Agreement, it's not a the, the pledges that countries make are not binding. That was tried before, but it was pretty unpalatable for lots of countries to sign up to some sort of overarching binding pledge that would enforce emissions cuts on countries. And so that kind of fell apart in the late 1990s and early 2000s, which led to the... What moves or decisions or uh, or kind of uh, foregrounding of commitments would signal to you in particular that COP27 is moving in the right direction? So I was talking to um, the Egyptian organisers actually earlier this week, um, and they they were quite interesting. They obviously this COP is coming at a time of um, increased global tensions. We've got the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine, the energy crisis, global inflation, tensions between China and the US. And they said that you know in this context, even kind of getting world leaders to show up is quite a, a good measure of success. So um, it will be how much fanfare those leaders make in those first two days of the summit. You will also want to look at the pledges made by countries on the sidelines of the main negotiations. So if there's more money being pledged for vulnerable countries or if there are fresh details from China, for example, on how much it's going to cut its methane emissions, that, that will also be a really good sign that kind of global progress is advancing. In terms of the negotiations themselves, I think... That's going to be very difficult even for a seasoned observer to really measure progress because the key decisions on that are due next year. So this is a kind of interim step where you might be able to say progress has been made or not made, but there won't be a final outcome for people to give a kind of tick or cross in the box for. You mentioned the Ukraine war. Is it likely to uh, provide a get out clause for those countries who are perhaps less enthusiastic about fulfilling their their climate commitments that they can say, uh, well, you know, we have a more immediate problem, which is simply um, heating and powering our economies? Mm, yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Um, and you might think that that would be the kind of logical response. But um, actually, the International Energy Agency put out some very interesting analysis last week, which essentially said that, you know, as much as the Ukraine war has caused untold misery and 
you know, human suffering and economic turmoil um, in the short term. In the long term, it's actually pushing countries to move faster on decarbonizing their energy systems simply because they're kind of looking at the volatility of the fossil fuel market and thinking long term, this this isn't great. So actually, the International Energy Agency thinks that it has accelerated the global peak in demand for fossil fuels, the, the, the war in Ukraine, and that actually within 15 years, demand for oil, gas and coal will start falling globally, which is would be a massive kind of turning point in the history of global economics. You mentioned earlier the idea of effectively funding the repairs and the mitigation and the uh, transformation of infrastructure that's required in, in, in poorer countries. There's been the idea of compensating the hardest hit countries for loss and damage. It's even been called climate reparations. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? I mean, uh, uh, you mentioned earlier that it was about a lot of, there will be a lot of talk about money at this particular COP. Yes, yeah, so this is an issue that has been rumbling on for years. So it's called um, loss and damage in UN jargon. And essentially, the concept is that uh, poorer countries around the world and more climate vulnerable nations are already suffering impacts from climate change that they didn't cause. It's developed nations that are responsible for the bulk of historical emissions. Um, but it is the like of the Horn of Africa, low lying islands, Pakistan that we've seen has suffered devastating floods this summer and and they are not responsible for the emissions that kind of have heated the atmosphere to a point that those kinds of events are possible. So the argument goes that the, you know, the countries that are responsible for this mess should be helping the countries suffering the cleanup to, to, to kind of get out of it. It's a really, really contentious issue. Developed countries, particularly the US, are worried that once you agree to the principle of handing over money for climate damage, then, you know, where do, where does that end? Essentially, it's opening Pandora's box. It was a big issue last year at COP26 in Glasgow. Uh, countries agreed at the last minute after a row in the final plenary that they would agree to more talks. But what climate vulnerable countries really want to see in Sharm el-Sheikh is some money on the table. That's probably unlikely to happen, but it's, it's turning up to be a big flashpoint for the summit. If you are kind of not in the thick of the of this conversation you're somebody like me it may well have looked to you that at cop 26 the kind of finale as it were was that china india and a couple of the other heavily coal dependent countries sort of torpedoed the agreement at the last moment with demands about continued coal use is that really what happened and have those heavily coal dependent countries kind of changed their stance at all in the intervening year well, it certainly caused a bit of last minute drama, which is not usually what you see at these COPs. Usually they're quite staged. There's lots of arguments over the placements of commas. You know, these talks go on for hours and, and they're un- unintelligible to the outside world. But this kind of last minute drama from China and India that left our COP26 president, Alok Sharma, in tears at the end of the summit was really made journalists in the room kind of sit up and listen. They, I wouldn't say they torpedoed the agreement. I mean, one thing to bear in mind is that the Glasgow Climate Pact, which was the agreement at the end of COP26, it was a non-binding agreement that countries were signing up to. And the, the main thrust of that agreement was to say that countries would come back next year with stronger climate pledges and that countries would um, fund more climate adaptation um, for vulnerable countries. So there were some really key elements in that document. And the language around fossil fuels was not something that was regarded as a really kind of central um, pledge that would kind of lead to action. It was more a signalling um, phrase. 
Um, and it was important because it was, his, it was historic. It was the first time fossil fuels have been mentioned in a final climate agreement. But it, I don't think anyone would say that it was really going to kind of change the needle on action on fossil fuels. So, um, I mean, it was certainly interesting that China and India did not feel ready to co- to commit to a complete phase out. They they argued that the language should be changed to phase down of, of coal use. But in terms of how much real world impact that had, I would probably say minimal. And it was it was a good bit of drama to tell a story at the end of the summit about what was happening. But yeah, it, it, its real world impact was was not substantial. One of the things you often hear from climate deniers is that, well, China's building a new coal fired power plant every 15 minutes. So it doesn't matter what we do. We might as well continue as normal because things are heading in that direction anyway. Have you noticed that China has in any way moderated its direction of its of its industrial development? Is Xi's government conscious of the fact that climate change is real and will affect China too? Mm, yeah. So, I mean, there's no point painting China as a darling of the climate world. It's one of the, the biggest emitters um, alongside the US. But it is certainly true to say that it is also one of the world's largest investors in green energy. It is rolling out wind farms and solar farms at a pretty astonishing rate. So those kind of there's there's two things being held in parallel. Yes, you know, China is building new coal and it is a huge emitter, but it is also one of the global drivers of the rollout of green energy. And it is absolutely taking this issue seriously because it can see the financial and social um, and economic risks coming down the track if it doesn't act so there's not an easy box to put China into and and I think what what a lot of people in the climate world would say is that this is the sort of chicken and egg scenario you have to kind of show that the rest of the world is moving in order to get the likes of China on board but equally everybody needs to move together to solve the problem. What's the significance of the fact that COP27 is happening in Egypt, which has a terrible record on human rights. You know, 65,000 political prisoners, third worst country by number of executions. One could, from a certain angle, look at it as a large bit of greenwashing for a fairly unpleasant state. One of the really kind of key elements of COPs is the right for civil society to come and to protest and to kind of make their voices heard and really create a sense of urgency for um, the politicians and the negotiators in the room to to break their deadlocks. So that's a really kind of crucial element. If you talk to, to country negotiators around the world, they'll say that the protesters are really vital for making sure that progress is made at these meetings. So it has been a concern that this is being in he- being held in Egypt in a kind of notoriously authoritarian state. Egypt would say that it has made zones available for protesters to to come and make their voices heard under pre-arranged agreement. Um, but there's, that's certainly a concern of many NGOs and human rights groups going into the summit is that this is not going to be as outspoken and accessible as cops usually are and that they would argue need to be in order to be effective. Uh, you mentioned earlier Monday and Tuesday is the bigwigs jetting in day, heads of states and so forth. Rishi Sunak initially said he wasn't going to go at all, and neither was the king, which led to huge criticism that his new government simply wasn't taking climate change seriously. And then he changed his mind and now he's going. What what has that done to Britain's kind of standing within the, the climate change world? I think it's just made the UK look faintly ridiculous. I mean, we were the hosts of Glasgow last year, albeit under another prime minister, but the same government. um, And we really touted our global commitment to pushing this agenda forward. 
Alok Sharma, our COP26 president, has got a huge amount of respect on the world stage for the amount of effort that he put into making sure the COP26 was a successful summit. And I think the signal that Rishi Sunak wasn't going to go and then you turned just makes it seem like our dedication to this issue is is wobbling. I mean, moving away from COP for a minute, the government is very new. What is your take on the Sunak government's attitude to climate change? Because we've seen very little so far. All of the announcements have been about the economy. Uh, it seems that Sunak isn't interested in any other aspect of, of, of governance. How would you mark the Sunak government's green card so far? I think it is too soon to tell. We'll know after this uh, fiscal statement um, that's coming up, I mean, what the government's agenda and priorities are going to be. One good thing that has happened is that the ban on fracking has been reinstated after Liz Truss tried to lift it. I mean, in reality, it probably wasn't going to go ahead because it's just too unpopular in those local areas. But it was an important signal to send. But there's lots of key decisions outstanding. So there's a decision on a new coal mine in Northumberland that we're still waiting on, still waiting on how much money the government might allocate to certain really key issues like energy efficiency to renewable energy. So it's too early to judge the Sunak government yet. But there are some very kind of pressing questions that campaigners will have and will want answers on in the next few months. Well, he did tweet that there's no long term prosperity without action on climate change. And there is no energy security without investing in renewables in it, which does seem to be kind of at least rebranding the notion of climate mitigation as a national security issue in a way that would appeal to people on the political right. Yes. And, that you know, there are some very strong arguments for investing in, in renewables and energy efficiency in the current context that have nothing to do with climate change and that, that have everything to do with energy security. The way that you insulate households from escalating gas prices is to help them use less gas. And the way you do that is to help them insulate their lofts, double glaze their windows and use a heat pump instead. So, you know, there's a very good argument for taking these steps from a kind of purely security lens and not have to try and, you know, fight the fight on, on, on climate change. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Does it matter that uh, King Charles won't be at the, at the actual conference, but, but has decided to host a party at Buckingham Palace? You know, a lot of people took that as subtweeting the Prime Minister. <laughs> um, I think personally, he will be very disappointed to not be there. Uh, anyone who's followed King Charles's career over the, over the last few decades will know that this is an issue he's really passionate about. Um, and so would like to have been there in person. So I think that does matter. Um, but it's obviously a slightly outdated decision given that it was taken under Liz Truss's short-lived government. I think it probably sends quite an important signal that he is convening a meeting tonight um, at the palace. Um, and I think it's now clear that 
this is an issue that is too important to the public, to the media to ignore. And that's why Rishi Sunak U-turned on his decision to go to COP. And I would be willing to bet that next year King Charles will be allowed to go to COP28. So there you go. I thought Green King just ran the pubs, but evidently not. <laughs> just to wrap up then, I mean, Madeline, this has been really interesting and, and, and kind of uh, filled in a huge amount of background. Is there one particular thing that listeners should look out for as the significant moment? I know it, it may be sort of oversimplifying it. Is there an aspect of this that you can think, if this happens, we'll know it's heading in the right direction? Oh, I think this COP is going to be quite a difficult one for that because, as I say, there's not going to be a nice shiny announcement at the end of the week to say, yes, look, this was what was agreed. But what I, one thing I'm personally looking out for is last year at COP26, the US and China pulled together a hasty press conference where they announced that they would be working together on climate issues going forward. And as the two global largest emitters, that's a really important signal. That's since broken down over tensions around Taiwan. A really important signal would be if that relationship between the US and China gets back on track and that they recommit to working together, because that is really what the world needs to fight this issue is the biggest players working together towards that common goal. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye out for that. Madeline, thanks for joining us. It's been fantastic and very, very interesting. Thanks so much for having me. Listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, we hope you're enjoying The Bunker. We're here every day to educate, explain and commiserate in these weird times. If you'd like to help us keep carrying on, then please do think about supporting us on Patreon to support Renewable Podcasts. You'll be helping us to pay journalists and producers and you'll be keeping us proudly independent as well. And you'll get the podcast early and with our ads too, as well as our carefully sourced merchandise. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out a bit more. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.